Good morning, good morning. It's good to be with you guys. Oh, thanks. You don't always do that, so it's special. I'll take that. Hey, church, as we were worshiping, uh, I don't know about you guys, but that uh, second song that the team was leading us in as we were in, uh, entering into God's presence and just singing that and uh, just thinking about how important the words that we were singing are, not just at all times, but especially for us right now as a nation, we are entering into a really tumultuous week. No matter how things go on Tuesday, as, as our nation chooses its highest leader, whoever's going to fill the Oval Office, it's so important that we as God's people keep that perspective that we were just singing about in that song. And I know it's tempting for all of us uh, because many of us are so passionate in our politics, right? That's just part of what it means to be an American sometimes is we're super passionate about our politics. And that's a good thing. I encourage us, let's go out on Tuesday and, and cast your vote. Choose that person who will sit in the Oval Office and, and we'll pray God's blessing on them, whoever they are. But it's so important for us as God's people in the midst of our culture right now that we need to not lose hope or not lose sight of rather who our hope is in. And I, and I don't care what name is on the ballot. I don't care what name you put on it. Our hope as God's people, it cannot be in that person. And so my prayer is that we wouldn't just sing those songs, but that we would actually live that out. That, that Jesus, the light of heaven, in whom is our redemption. That the scriptures would affirm that no matter what happens on Tuesday... I'm not waiting for that person to save me. I'm waiting for the return of the one who has. And so I pray that, it, it, I don't know what this week's going to look like, but I pray that our church and our community might represent something different. That no matter what happens, that we'd be able to point people to true redemption, towards true hope, towards true salvation. And it doesn't exist in a political platform, in a political party, or in a political candidate, that we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith, the one in whom we find salvation. And so I just pray that we'd be reoriented to that, and we breathe that in as we head out into this week, as we enter into conversations, as we're tempted to put just a little bit of our hope in another person. I pray that we would just be reminded of the scriptures and of who the Lord is and what that means for us as God's people. So as we get ready to look into God's scriptures, would you just pray with me and join me as we pray for our country heading into this week and beyond? So Lord Jesus, we affirm that you are uh, the ruler of all things. Lord, we believe and affirm what your scriptures say, uh, that in you and through you all things were made, that in you uh, all things hold together that you are Lord of all creation. And so we just affirm that, we celebrate that, that that is truth, that that is reality, and that leaders have come and gone, nations have risen and fallen, and yet your word and your reign, Lord Jesus, uh, will never fall. And so we just celebrate you. We celebrate the gift that it is to be your people here today. And I pray that as we turn to your word, that you would be honored, that your name would rise higher than any other name in our hearts and in our lives, and that you'd receive all of our glory and all of our trust, Lord Jesus. And we pray this 
In your name and all God's people pray. Amen. Amen, amen. Well, hey, let's continue in Scripture. Pull it out if you have it. If you don't, borrow the Bible from the pew ahead of you. And we're going to jump into Judges chapter 6. And then we're going to go into Judges chapter 7 as well. So turn there. And as you're turning there, one of the things that uh, Taylor and I have had to learn as parents is how to teach our kids not to be fearful. And that's difficult sometimes as parents because... We each have our own set of fears, right? And so for me, one of my fears, if you've gotten to know me at all, is I do not like roller coasters. That's just not my jam. Uh, Just the sight of them makes my stomach just go nuts. So I don't like it. But I don't want to pass that fear onto my kids. And so uh, we got knots passes. We've had knots passes. uh, Thanks, uh, COVID, for that this year. But before that, we would take our kids to Knott's and we would just try and introduce them to these rides and really kind of force myself to be introduced to these rides. But we took Camden last year. Camden, uh, at Knott's, there's like the log ride or whatever they call it, but it has the the big drop in the water and all that stuff. And so for a five-year-old, that can be, or a 32-year-old, that can be a pretty uh, scary experience. And so I uh, bravely hung out with Kennedy at the end of the ride while Taylor took him on the ride. And this is about him, not me. And so he's, I could watch him while he was in line to get on the ride. And, you know, he's kind of doing exactly probably what I would do, which is, you know, he's doing a little, a little tap dance. He's moving to the beat. And he's nervous, nervous, nervous. And then we see him on the ride, and he comes down. And then he, the ride's over, and he made it all the way through. Now, granted, he came down the log ride like this. And he got a really cool picture. But then he comes out. And he comes out of the exit and his face is just beaming with pride. And he's coming out and then he walks up and I remember asking him like, hey, how was it, buddy? And he's like, well, I peed my pants, but it was fun. (laughs) And I was like, well, that's okay. All right. I'll take it. And so it was my responsibility I walked him from the ride to the parking lot because we were going to drive home and change him and then come back. And the swagger that he walked with all the way to the parking lot, no shame, like just peed his pants, but he was just walking like the, the, biggest, the biggest, baddest five-year-old that was walking through knots that day, right? And I just, I love it because he peed his pants a little bit, but he did it and he overcame his fear. And so what we're going to be thinking about this morning I always love to play this game of how he connects the story. What we're going to be thinking about this morning is that sometimes God calls you and I into some scary things. Sometimes he calls us into situations that we're afraid of, that we're fearful of, that stir up in us doubt, either about ourselves, about what God is calling us to. And there are going to be some times in our faith where we have those spiritual pee-your-pants times. And yet, God calls us into that. And in those moments, God does incredible things in us and through us. And this morning, we look at the example of Gideon, one of the judges. And so with that, look at Judges chapter 6. And we're going to be kind of picking out a couple sections in the narrative of Gideon. And so we're going to start off in verse 11 of chapter 6. And it says this. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizarite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. 
When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all of this happened to us? Where are all of his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us, and he's given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. But the Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. And now let's go down to verse 36. It says, Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, don't be angry with me. Let me make just just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. But this time, make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry and all the ground was covered with dew. Now early in the morning, Jerob Baal, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Harad. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I can't deliver Midian into your hands, or Israel would boast against me, saying, my own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while only 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, there's still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will thin them out for you there. If I say, this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. Then the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but he kept the 300 who took over the provisions and the trumpets of others. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the fact that in it we can not only find your desires, we, we not only find revelation of who you are, but you also reveal to us who we are, how we act, why we are the way we are. And so in that, Lord, we can find courage, we can find confidence in the fact that you promise to be with your people. And that's a hallmark of our faith, Lord. And so this morning, as we submit to your scriptures, I pray that you would speak to us, that you would teach us, that that you would challenge us, that we might leave inspired, inspired by the story of Gideon, inspired by your work in him and through him. And so, Lord, we love you and we thank you, and we ask this blessing in your name. Amen. So the, the book of Judges 
comes in the time of Israel's history where they've, they've come into the land now, but they haven't yet gotten the kings, right? That's where David starts off that whole lineage. And there's kind of this in-between period. And God's intent was always that he would lead his people, that they wouldn't have a person, they wouldn't have a political leader above them, but that God's people would just need him and would follow him. And so during this season of Israel's history, God would temporarily raise up what are called judges. They're people who would come and who would lead Israel just for a short season. And sad to say, judges, their primary role was to rescue Israel from themselves. Because though Israel had the law, though they knew what God expected of them, they would frequently abandon God and they would go their own way. Right? Sound like anybody in the room. And so they would go their own way and then God would punish them. And he would punish them by having their neighbors, other foreign countries, they would come in and they would oppress them. Now, in the case of Judges 6, it's these people called the Midianites. And what we find out here is that the Midianites were harshly oppressing Israel. So much so that frequently they would just come into Israel's territory and just raid everything. So you've got to imagine being Israel. Everything that you work hard for, your crops that you raised that year, you constantly lived in fear that a foreign nation was going to come in and just take everything that your family had. And that you'd be left with nothing. You would have potentially nothing to provide for your family, no way to care for them, no way to feed them. And so it's in the midst of this situation that the people begin to cry out to God, saying, save us. Even Gideon's own words, he starts to blame God for that. Like, God, why aren't you with us anymore? And the irony is that God's like, well, I I haven't gone anywhere. You just stopped being with me. And so Gideon finds himself there saying, God, why are we in this situation? And then God calls on Gideon. He raises him up to be the judge who would come and liberate Israel. And that is what we find. And so as we jump back into the text, let's look at verse 11. And as we look at this first section where Gideon interacts with God, or God manifesting himself through the angel of the Lord, what we see is that Gideon, and he's going to start here and really carry this all the way through the narrative is Gideon struggles to comprehend the identity that God has for him. And all throughout the way, though God continually speaks this identity about him and speaks into his life, Gideon wrestles with it. And that's going to manifest itself in Gideon struggling to have faith at pretty much every single step of his journey with God. And so Gideon, sometimes for us, is this perfect example that we can look to of a guy who God is just trying to speak identity, trying to speak faith into, and every step of the way, Gideon is struggling to have just enough faith to keep going. But he struggles to to understand and to comprehend the words that God speaks over him. But look where we find him. Look at verse 11. It says, this is where Gideon, his son, was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Right now, I am not an agricultural guy. If I want bread, I go down to Stater Brothers and I pick out a loaf. And you know, my, the extent of my agricultural ability is to dig into the back shelf and find the tag that has the best date. Like that's the only farming I do. I pick out the best date of my breads. But back in this time, you actually had to make everything. And so, if you're looking at that and you're like, I don't know what it means to thresh wheat. I've never done that before. I don't know why you would thresh it in a wine press. So here's what's going on. 
To thresh wheat, Google tells me, check it out, I did this for you, uh, is where you're just crushing the grain to separate it from the stock. It's super fancy, super fun, and it's great work. But you got to do that to make all sorts of grains and breads. Now, the question becomes, why is Gideon threshing his wheat in a wine press? And why does Scripture specifically say that that's where he was and what he was doing? Now, normally, he would have been threshing his wheat on the threshing floor. But the problem is, is that they were so frequently raided by the Midianites that if you were to thresh your wheat on the threshing floor, it would probably get stolen right out of your hands before you even had the opportunity to take it. And so we find and we're introduced to Gideon as he is hiding out in the wine press, threshing the wheat. And so you look at that and you're like, man, Gideon is not trying to solve the world's problems. Gideon does not see himself as the judge. He does not see himself as the one whom God would use to rescue Israel. Gideon is just threshing wheat in the wine press. He's, he's keeping his head down, and he's just trying to get by. And church, for, for many of us, I know that that resonates with maybe what we're feeling right now, maybe what you're experiencing in this junk shoot of a year. That maybe you came into 2020 like everybody else, and you thought, this is going to be my year, right? It's a new decade. I don't know why that means anything, but it's going to be like the roaring 20s, and it's just going to be sweet. And then all of a sudden it comes around, and I don't know how many years we are into a pandemic, but everybody just, you have this like cultural feeling of, I'm just trying to keep my head down, and I'm just trying to make it through. I just want to get through this. I find myself just threshing wheat in the wine press. I'm not trying to be a hero. I'm not trying to do anything big. I'm not trying to partner with God to see anything happen. My prayer right now is, God, can we just get through this? Can I just survive this? Can I just hopefully make it through pretty much with everything intact? And so as a culture, we're kind of, we feel that heaviness of everybody's just trying to make it. Just trying to piece it together through this season. And what I love about God is that he shows up exactly in those moments when Gideon would never have seen himself as a guy or as the person to lead God's people into greatness. He's just threshing wheat in the wine press. He's keeping his head down. He's laying low and he's just trying to get through it. And yet, it's in that moment God shows up. And church, I I think that even in seasons like that, even if you're just hiding out, laying low, trying to survive, my prayer this morning is that we would be inspired by God's word. Inspired to have the kind of faith that actually believes that even in a crazy time like this, maybe your life just feels tumultuous. Maybe it feels like you're just laying low. But even in such a time as this, God still shows up. God still shows up and God wants to do incredible things, church. I, I I can't describe to you the things that God wants to do in you and through you, even in a time as bad as this. God's not just taking 2020 off, laying low, hoping to recover. God wants to do some incredible things. And then he shows up. And my prayer this morning is as we look at God's word, that you and I might just be inspired to kind of pull ourselves out of the wine press 
and to catch a vision for what he might do in us and through us. That we don't just have to lay low, but that we can do some great things. So Gideon gets the invitation. And based upon what the text tells us about him, he's not the guy that you'd probably choose to be the judge, to be the one who's going to rally God's people out of this 2020 situation and all of a sudden lead them into something great. He's not the guy, and he certainly doesn't see himself as the guy. Look at the way he describes himself in verse 15. Right, so God shows up and says, hey, I'm sorry, this is back in verse 12. God shows up and the first thing he says to him is, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. As this dude's cowering in the wine press, threshing wheat, like, what? Mighty warrior? No, bro, you got the wrong guy. I am literally hiding because I don't want anybody to steal my bread. And God shows up and says, what? The Lord is with you mighty warrior. And sometimes it feels like God's just being ironic when he uses words to describe us because you and I have a hard time, honestly, we oftentimes have a hard time believing what God actually says about you. And then God shows up in the wine press and calls and says, mighty warrior, I'm with you. And you're like, nope, that's not me, man. And let me, then let me tell you, look at verse 15. Let me tell you all the reasons why you got the wrong guy. Verse 15, He's polite, at least. Pardon me, Lord. Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. Right, so you got to transport yourself back to ancient Near Eastern culture, where things like lineage and clans and family locality, those things mattered back then. They don't really matter as much to you and I in 21st century America. Like, nobody is looking at your lineage to see where you came from. Nobody looks at your last name and then locates you and your ability and your capability by your last name. And I'm really grateful they don't, to be honest, right? I mean, I, I think about uh, Sam, who was up here helping lead us in worship. Sam's got a really cool last name. Sam de Leon. Sam of the Lion. I'll take that. I'm Ryan Holloman which is Dutch for man who dwells in the hollow. <laughs> like, for real? So 400 years ago, some dude named Holloman was living in a hole, and the Dutch were like, that's you, bro. And that's me, 400 years later. Ryan, the man who dwells in the holes. So I am super glad that we don't live in an ancient Near Eastern culture because my prospects would be pretty limited. Let's just be real. But that's, for, for Gideon, name and family and clan mean everything. So look at the way he describes himself. He says, first of all, I'm the least in my family, which probably means that he's the youngest of all the family members, of all the men in his family, the Abizarites, as we're told. And the Abizarites are the most insignificant clan in the tribe of Manasseh. So Gideon is saying, like, Lord, you, you really got the wrong guy. I'm the dude dwelling in the hollow, okay? I'm, I'm the least in my family. My family is the least of this clan, and that clan is the least of this tribe. I am not who you say I am. And so though you and I, we, we don't locate ourselves within clans. We don't locate ourselves within even our own family names. So really, like none of us 
hold your prospects based upon what your family and your grandparents did. And for a lot of us, we're probably glad for that. But then God shows up, and though you and I don't locate ourselves by clan and by family and all that stuff, we also have a problem sometimes just accepting the the identity that God speaks through his word about you. So maybe for you, your struggle is not, well, my, my clan is the least. But for you, you've got these narratives about who you are, and they usually fit within a sentence like this, I'm not blank enough. Or I don't have enough. And so when God shows up and he speaks to us in his word and he says, hey, I'm with you and I want to do something through you, you and I are filtering that through a narrative that says, no, God, you got the wrong person. I, I'm not educated enough. I don't have enough influence. I'm not... I don't have enough personality, like I am quiet, I am shy, I am not enough of this or that. And, and that is what you need to use. And then we see that God shows up and he speaks to us when we're, when we're threshing wheat in the wine press, keeping our heads down, and then he shows up and he speaks over you and he speaks identity over you. And honestly, the hardest part sometimes is just getting us to believe the identity that he says you have. And so we look at let's, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is now in the New Testament. And, and Paul is writing to the church. And you and I take hope because this is where now we find our identity. It's not in your last name. It's not in your family. It's not in your education. It's not in your abilities. It's not in your personality. It's not in your resources But the scriptures would affirm that now your primary identity, the one that God needs and values the most, he's given you. He's given that to you through faith in Jesus. And then now listen to the way he describes it in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. And so theologically, Paul is talking about everything's different once you put your faith in Jesus. It doesn't matter your education. It doesn't matter your job title. It doesn't matter your resources. It doesn't matter your family. It doesn't matter your influence. The old is gone. Now the new has come. Through faith in Jesus, you have this new identity. And then notice what God does right after he says the identity piece in verse 17. Then there's this invitation into mission. Where he says, the old is gone, the new has come. This is who I say you are, not because you've suddenly changed, but because now you're found in Christ. There's a new identity. And then there's a connection. He says, hey, join me in this work. You who are pretty much, I mean, apart from him, unqualified to be a part of this amazing and incredible work that God's about, Because of the new identity that you have in Christ, now you're qualified. Now you're invited to do something great. And so church, I know for some of us, we struggle with seeing ourselves as anybody whom God could use to do something of significance. And I just want you to trust God when he says that he wants to do something through you. And he wants to do it in this time, in this season when you're threshing wheat in the wine press. He wants to do incredible things. And so God speaks that identity.
But the identity is always connected to the presence of God. Right? Like this is where the, the, the self-help gospel loses its teeth because it steps outside the gospel. And the, and the self-help gospel is it's, it, you have value. You by yourself, you can do incredible things. And we begin to cut the Jesus portion out of it. And all of a sudden it's just self-help. Like if you just believe it, if you will it enough, you, Ryan, dweller of the hollows, you can do great things. And that's not the gospel. The gospel says, no, Ryan, you can do great things. You can be a part of amazing, incredible works because of the identity that I've given you, because of the work, and because of the presence of God. Apart from his presence, I got nothing. I got nothing to offer. But God always connects it with his presence. He does it in verse 12 when he shows up. The Lord's with you. And then in verse 16, after Gideon's done having his pity party, God says this, the Lord, he just listens to all this, like, I'm not good enough, woe is me, my clan's the weakest. And then God just says in verse 16, the Lord answered, I will be with you. You notice there's no stroking of ego there. There's no self-help gospel. They're like, no, Shrian, you are good. You can do this, man, you got this. No, God reaffirms theological biblical truth. No, you're right, Ryan, you are the least in your family, the weakest clan, but I'm with you. And because I'm with you, all of this is now possible. So it's God's presence that makes the difference. The old is gone, the new has come. And now we go down to verse 36. So, so Gideon summons up the courage. He steps into that identity, kind of. He pretty much tries, so we'll give him that. And then verse 33 comes along. Now in verse 33, Gideon stepped into the role and in verse 33, all the Midianites, all these guys start to gather together. And scriptures will later say that there's 130,000 of them. It's a lot of dudes, okay? 130,000 gather. And Gideon blows the horn and starts to rally all of God's people to see who shows up. And we find out that 32,000 show up. Now, if you didn't finish high school math, 32,000 is not nearly as much as 130,000. So only a few, only a fraction show up. And then Gideon does what Gideon and you and I do best. He starts to question things, right? In verse 35, we find out, or in verse 34, that God gives him his spirit. So now Gideon has got God's promises. He's got God's presence. He's got God's spirit. And even with all of that stuff, we come to verse 36, and Gideon says this, God, if you will save Israel by my hand, look at this, as you've promised. He's like, God, I know you've already promised this. I got that. But you know what would make me feel way better than your promise? Way better than your presence? Way better than your spirit? I'm going to throw out a blanket, and if it's wet in the morning, I know you're there with me. Now, sometimes we look back to this as an example of faith, like, hey, let's test and see if God's with you. But here's the thing, church. This is not meant to be like a go and do likewise situation. The fleece is not a moment of great faith. The fleece is kind of a shameful example of what you and I wrestle with all the time. You've got God's promise. You've got God's presence. You've got his spirit. And despite all of those things, you and I are still like, 
indulge me for a second here, God. If you would just pass this one test, then, then I'll trust you. And you and I are experts at giving God fleeces. And here's the thing that we take away from this. The fleece example is not like a shining star moment where you want to go and do likewise. The purpose of the fleece is notice the way that God responds. Can you imagine being God? I've given you my promise. I give you my presence. I give you my spirit. And you're going to come at me with a fleece blanket and give me a test. And God has every right to be angry with his lack of faith. And to be honest, God has every reason to be angry with my lack of faith which I demonstrate frequently for him. I come to God with all these promises that he's given me. I'm like, yes, God, I believe this. I I trust this. And yet, I'm not quite satisfied. And not just once, but he does it twice, just for good measure to make me feel better. And how does God respond? He responds to the lack of faith. He responds to the fear and the doubt with grace and with patience. Do you notice that? If I were God, I'd be like, man, would you put that stupid blanket away? Like, what more do I need to give you? And yet he doesn't. Fine, you want the blanket to be wet? I'll make the blanket wet. Fine, today you want the blanket to be dry and the ground to be wet? Fine, I'll do that. God meets Gideon's lack of faith, his doubts, his weaknesses. He meets it with grace and with patience. And I don't know about you, but I am encouraged by that because I frequently find myself setting out fleece blankies. And sometimes it's just good to know that God meets me there with grace. He doesn't give up on me when I waver. In fact, scriptures would affirm I can have his presence, his promise, his spirit, and still have doubts too. And God will meet me with grace in that moment. He responds in that way. And then does the blanket thing. Verse 1 of chapter 7. Now we're good to go, right? Now, here we go. Gideon's got his courage back. He's confident. And he says, all right, we're ready. And then God says this. You know what? You've got too many men. And I'd be like, God, I beg to differ. I don't have enough. How many times have you ever told God that very same thing? Yeah, God, no, I'm all about this. I'm so in. Let's do this incredible thing that you're calling me to step into, to serve this way, to be ambitious, to take risk, to dare to do something great for your kingdom. Let's do it. But could I have a little bit more? Could I have a little bit more? And then God comes and he says, no, no, actually, you've got too much. And then he gives the out. Hey, anybody who's afraid, just go on home. It's all good. I would probably lose confidence in this, the fact that two-thirds of my army is like, yeah, I'm, I'm afraid, I'm going to go home. And like, they just start to walk away. I'd be like, man, God, you're really bad at this whole leadership thing. <laughs> like, you're supposed to go out there and give like a speech, you know? Like, hey, you're outnumbered five to one, it's okay. No, if you're afraid, just go home. And they start to just kind of slide away. And you got 10,000 left. You're like, all right, God, that's cool. But now, now we're good to go, right? And then God says, no, 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 hang on. You still have too many. You'd be like, God, you must not know how to count. And he says, no, let's go down, let's go down to this river. And you guys, I don't know why God does what he does. Don't, don't ask me to explain to interpret that verse. I just don't know the drinking thing. I got nothing for you. Seminary didn't equip me with that. But they go down to the river. Some of them drink with their hands. I don't know. Some of them drink like a dog. 
Somehow they winnow it out, and God's like, these 300 are your guys. 300 is 1% of what Gideon started with. And God's like, now we're ready. Sometimes it feels like God's doing that in my life. And I think you know what that means too. Like, God, I feel like you keep calling me to take a step forward. You want me to have faith, but then you keep taking everything I've got. And now I'm left with 300 dudes who lapped water. I need more. You say this is who I am because of your, you being with me, and then you start to take everything I've got, and now you call me into faith. And church, the inspiring part is this, and this is why God does what he does, and he says it here. Because if I were to do it, if I were to do the miraculous in your life, you would just attribute it to having enough. And then God talks about, man, it's specifically because I've taken everything else away from you. Then you'll see it's me. And so church, maybe you're in that season right now. You're struggling with the identity piece. You feel like you've got no resources left. And yet here comes Ryan preaching the gospel this morning saying, let's step out and do something big. And you're like, man, that's not this week's sermon. This week's sermon is supposed to be, I'm supposed to reap plentifully. And now you're calling me to just take whatever I've got. And it feels like 300 guys and go do the impossible. And so church, I pray that we would in faith meet God there. And you're going to bring doubts, you're going to bring questions, you're going to bring insecurities, you're going to bring your fleece blankies. And God's going to meet you in those moments and he's going to extend to you grace and patience and he's still going to call you to go forward. And so I pray that you and I would be inspired to have the kind of faith that goes with him. That we'd be able to see what God does in us and through us as we obey in faith. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up, but would you guys join me in a word of prayer?